Please pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us today with wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Living what we learn, continuing to grow in the knowledge of God, trusting in your energy, and giving joyful thanks to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I mean, I haven't been here long enough to have a right to have any expectations, uh, but when Nancy and I headed out of town for previously made plans last weekend, it it felt a little awkward. Uh, You know, we'd been here all of two weeks and we're already disappearing. Um, But um, I I knew that you all were in in wonderful hands. You know, hockey players have an expression uh, to urge each other on before a game. Uh, They'll they'll go up to one another and just say, bring it, bring it. And uh, word on the street is Walter brought it last week. So very happy for that. Louis Evans was a pastor at a prominent Presbyterian church in the 1970s in Southern California. And uh, one day he was sitting in his study, staring blankly out the window at a row of trees that lined the foundation of the sanctuary. The church needed to change. He knew that. He'd known it for months. It was stale. It was stuck. But it wouldn't change. Maybe you've all experienced that season in a church's life where change is needed, but it just won't happen. Well, he had tried to tweak the structures, renovate the forms, make new skins for the new wine of the Spirit, but one brilliant after another had been heaped on the ash pile of board vetoes and congregational indifference. Suddenly, sitting there, discouraged, Louis Evans heard the church's groundskeeper fill the air with some of the most vituperative and creative profanity he had ever heard. He went outside to ask what was the matter. Several weeks before, the groundskeeper had suffered a long illness and was forced to leave his job for a period. In the interim, the church hired an outside company to take care of the the shrubs and the bushes and the trees and the grass. The groundskeeper had been painstakingly for months For years, shaping the trees that lined the sanctuary into pyramids. But the temps had decided globes would be better. Thus, the cursing. They'd ruined his work, and it would take a long time to get it back to where it was. As he explained to Louis, it'll take years because you can shape the trees only as much as they have grown. That's when the light went off in Louis's head when God spoke to him and said, you can shape the trees only as much as they have grown. He'd been trying to shape the church before its people had grown. He'd seen the church as an engineer. Forgive me, Bob. (laughs) He'd seen the church as an engineer would a building project. He needed to see it as a groundskeeper would a garden. The engineering model had him trying to bring about spiritual change through programs and structures, in essence, working from the outside in. A horticultural model, a gardening model, would have him feeding and watering the plants and shrubs and trees until they grew enough to be shaped, in essence, working from the inside out. And so Louis began to spend more time in 
face-to-face encounters with individuals, more time in prayer, more time in the word of God, more time in worship, in true koinonia. He spent less time in committees and task forces, far less time in his study drawing diagrams and charts and dreaming up strategies. Grow the people and the institution will follow. Last week we said, two weeks ago, we said that we would take our lead throughout the summer from two verses in Colossians. And we heard them again this morning at the tail end of the Colossians reading. They're really the centerpiece of the whole letter. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Hear them one more time. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. And we began to see two weeks ago that those two verses really dictate the entire outline of the epistle. Um, Each phrase covers a whole chunk of material. Um, We looked at what it means to walk in Christ two weeks ago. Today, we're returning to that thematic center of everything Paul wants to say, the core message of the letter. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, Now, having learned what it means to walk in him, we want to look at what it means to grow in him, to be rooted and built up in him. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. That's how Paul begins. Right away, in this interesting and kind of curious autobiographical passage, it's it's rare for Paul to talk about himself in this much detail. And you might be seduced into thinking that because Paul is talking about himself in these verses, that you can sort of hit the pause button and ignore what he's saying because it's about him. But everything he says about himself is likewise about us. And he wants to turn it to our attention. First of all, his attitude in ministry. I rejoice in my sufferings. Was anyone stopped short at just that phrase alone? I rejoice in my sufferings. Now he's talking about his sufferings for the gospel, not just, you know, not just any old annoyance or any interruption in his plans, not common everyday suffering, but he's suffering that's brought about because of his faithfulness to proclaim the good news of Jesus. There's a whole sermon here, believe me. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you and I should rejoice anytime anything goes wrong or feel good about how it's gone wrong or be foolish enough to pray for things to go wrong so that we can experience joy. But it is to say that suffering is inevitable for those who are, as Paul says, in Christ. And that kind of suffering is essential for growth and maturing. So pray that you may rejoice, not run when that kind of suffering hits. Because for sure, that kind of suffering for the gospel is a prelude to something really, really vitally important happening in your life. And if you were to merely evade that suffering, 
Or two, quickly pray that God would heal and overcome that suffering. You might miss out on the very things God wants to teach you in the midst of that suffering. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for the sake of the gospel. Joy anyway is what I often call it. It's important. That's Paul's attitude in ministry. But then he talks about his commission. He calls it his stewardship. It's a trust given to him, given to me for you, he says, to make the word of God fully known. How great the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Bob, I can't, I can't avoid the opportunity to speak to you personally on behalf of all your brothers and sisters. You know today in a way more poignantly than any of us that hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And who knew that? And that's why we can rejoice. You know, our hearts are broken. You're devastated. But Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And we gather here week in, week out to sing praises to, to hear from a living Lord. And we do not grieve as those who do not know that. We grieve as those who are assured that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. That's Paul's whole deal. To proclaim that good news. So that there's always a purpose in Paul's letters. There's always at least one, if not many, so that's. Paul spends most of his time doing one thing, announcing Jesus as King and Lord, with the aim of bringing as many as possible to what he calls maturity in Christ. Did you know it's possible to be in Christ and still be immature? Many of you know that, have seen that. I've seen churches utterly stopped in their tracks because of persistent immaturity, persistent unwillingness to grow up in Christ. And to imagine that that was enough. It's possible to be in Christ and still mature, not understanding fully what it means to be in Christ, not grasping the new possibilities and responsibilities set before us, Paul says, him we proclaim, this Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's the main thing. Maturity in Christ. It's the whole deal in Paul's letter to the Colossians. That's Paul's task. Since Christ is Lord of all, his task is, first of all, universal in scope. 
There's no one for whom Christ has not died and risen again. Let me say it differently. You will never lock eyes with another human being for whom Jesus did not die and rise again. Take that on board. Take that into everyday encounters with people. You know, as Nancy and I were walking yesterday afternoon um, in, in Greenwich, uh, you know, people told us, you're in Connecticut, you have to go see Greenwich. So we went to Greenwich. You know, eyes bugging out. And yet, we didn't lock eyes with a single person for whom Jesus did not die and rise again. And we've known that as we've walked through Seaside Park in in Bridgeport and seen a very different kind of life. Paul's task is universal. Just count up on your own when you reread this passage how often everyone, the word everyone, shows up. Paul owes Jesus to everyone. He can't be content to just create a little in-group. He aims at nothing less than all people, every person. He becomes, he says to the Corinthians, all things to all people in order that I may be that by some means I may save, by all means I may save some. Yeah, let me say that again. I become all things to all people in order that by all means I may may save some. That's the universality of the task that Paul takes on. He has to warn everyone that in this Christ alone is life, that without him everyone's dead in trespasses and sin. No one's left out of Paul's scope, or yours or mine. His task is universal, and it never ends. Look at this. Paul must, he says, present everyone mature in Christ. That's his job description. I wonder how many young clergy would sign up for that if we told them right out of the chute, your job is to present everyone mature in Christ. Therefore, he says, I must teach everyone in all wisdom, opening eyes and hearts of men and women to the fact that Jesus is Lord of their life, of all of it, of every relationship, every word and deed. The children that are created by Paul's constant creative gospel proclamation remain his constant care. The fact that he writes letters to congregations, even to people he's never met and never will meet, signals how deep his concern is for their growth in Christ, for their maturing. He's not interested in just planting churches, getting things off the ground, but in continuing to nurture their life in Christ so that they grow up and so they mature and come to a fullness of understanding, as he puts it. Paul's task is universal, and it never ends. It's aimed at everyone maturing in Christ. Now, too many congregations get to thinking that we can focus our energies on on just a few. 
on a kind of spiritual elite. And some people even think, well, that's, you know, that's just for those who are gifted or interested or really committed. Paul doesn't talk in those terms. His task is to present everyone mature in Christ. How? Well, the task, he says it very simply, the task is preaching and teaching. The road to maturity, I, I tried really hard to, to ignore this. Um, and I have friends who have argued that we can forget this in, in a day and age when, when oral communication is, is increasingly irrelevant and when people's attention span has, has shrunk and social media have taken over and we all know how a whole generation has been shaped visually. And all of that's true. All of that is true and important to pay attention to. But nonetheless, Paul says that the road to maturity is through proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Now, that's not all he says, and I'll come back to that. But there's a message to proclaim, to preach, and to teach. And I'm not just saying that because I get paid to do this. But this, preaching the word of God, Paul says, is essential to the maturing of God's people. And it's a staggering task. It's one that calls into play all of Paul's energies. Look at the words he uses to describe his job in ministry. He says, I toil and I struggle. He works and sweats like any farmer or builder. He's strained and tense as an athlete running a race. He throws himself headlong and unreservedly into the task with all the energy, he says, all the energy I have from God. Because remember, he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. He strives with all the energy which God mightily inspires in him, he says. The cause of the gospel is God's cause. God will make his gospel speed and triumph everywhere. God will supply the energy, the wondrous, tireless working power that gives the speed and assures the strength. This word struggling shows up, maybe it's striving in your translation, it shows up enough times in Colossians and elsewhere in Paul that I got to thinking, what's Paul really talking about? Is he just saying it's hard work? Well, we knew that. Is he just saying it's frustrating at times? Well, sure. But then this insight. What's struggling in verse 29? Well, I think Paul already gave us a hint in the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 9, when he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then at the end of the letter, we'll hear him give a final shout out to Epaphras, the founder, the planter of the church in Colossae. And this is what he says about Epaphras. He he says he's a faithful servant, but the thing he chooses to lift out, he says, Epaphras is always struggling, there's the word again, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Confronted with this staggering, universal, never-ending task of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, this precious mystery now revealed, Christ, our hope, 
Paul is struggling in prayer. That's the hard work he's talking about. And remember the task, this universal, timeless, never-ending task is aiming at your and my maturity. But here's the thing. Being mature in Christ means way more than just knowing stuff. I deceived myself for a long time in pastoral ministry into thinking that I was actually fulfilling this mandate by packing people into classrooms. It was fun. I like teaching, and people who like teaching like it when people show up. (laughs) And when lots show up, you get seduced into thinking that, oh, I must be really good. And maybe those classes were, at times, really good. But I've learned that just sitting in a classroom and absorbing information or being entertained, not a bad thing, doesn't necessarily produce maturity. Maturing in Christ is way more than just knowing stuff. I want you all to know stuff. You want to know stuff. I mean, I would, I would really be thrilled if more people in more churches knew more of this book. Absolutely. But when Paul talks about maturity, this is what he's talking about. Chapter 2, the first three verses. People aren't just uninformed They're disconnected. A lack of information limits their passion for Jesus, but being disconnected limits their compassion for people. So Paul prays that they will become mature in the sense that they will have what he calls encouraged hearts. We teach and admonish so that people might be equipped to encourage one another in love. That's the start of what maturity looks like. Not when people walk around parading how much they know about Jesus, but when they start to live like Jesus in relationship with one another. Being knit together in love, he goes on. What a, what a beautiful phrase. That's maturity. Living as a tapestry of love. What Paul's saying is this, you can't know Jesus unless you love each other. And you can't love each other unless you know Jesus. Experiencing and sharing all the riches of knowing Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Every minute of time invested in building relationships with one another around the word of God is time well spent. That's, <clears throat> and that's where maturing happens. Well, in conclusion, the task isn't just Paul's. It's ours. We who are members of the apostolic church have inherited, inherited the apostolic task. Him we proclaim. We'll say that with Paul, won't we? 
to everyone we meet, by everything we say and do, ours is the same unlimited and unending task. Ours is the toil and striving. So let's get on our knees and pray for the speeding of the word. Ours too for the asking is all the energy which God inspires within those whom he has called. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Of course, if we do nothing, we shall be apart from him. Dead branches cut off from the vine. The Christ who died for all of us wants us wholly for his own. He wants our toil and our striving. And unless we toil and strive, we shall not really know him as our Lord. We shall not know the great, the high, exhilarating energy he inspires within the toiling, striving, and believing. I'm praying for all of us this week that we will feel that call to mature in Christ. That's what I'm praying for. In the name of Jesus, amen.